Welcome to the Job of Marketing, where we look at, examine, and try to understand the practical aspects of B2B marketing. I'm Ken Chow, your host and producer of the show. I myself am a veteran of 25 years in B2B marketing, and three years ago, I started my own agency, focused on making marketing teams more efficient, more productive, and, I hope, a lot happier. If you want to find out more about me, and I can't imagine why, you can go to thejobofmarketing.com. Each week, I'm going to focus on a different topic, and we're going to hear from subject matter experts, vendors, and members of our own community. We'll share opinions, advice, experiences, gripes, sometimes in the form of what I like to refer to as war stories, and those are a lot of fun. This week, we're featuring Holger Schulze, an outstanding B2B marketing leader, and we're going to talk about some of the general principles behind successful lead gen. But before we do that, I am going to start with a quick war story, one that sort of explains the origins of the show. So it's 1995, and I'm living and working in the Silicon Valley, and I'm on a marketing team at a firm that's just turning the corner from startup to growing business. Everything was going great. You know, very happy, big-name customers, very busy sales team, cash in the bank, all good. But then we hit a wall. You see, as we started to gain momentum, the growth expectations the board put on us were cranked up from high to something closer to irrational optimism, and we just weren't making enough leads. It was a big ticket item, and we had a long sales cycle. So every month we missed our target on leads, we further doomed the following fiscal year. And a clearly discernible level of chaos was breaking out. You know, uh, sort of the, what do we do? I don't know, but do it faster kind of vibe that takes over a lot of startups. So the board brings in Mr. Fixit, a well-known and still very famous Silicon Valley marketing guru. Brilliant guy. A tad irascible, but brilliant. Now, despite what happens next, this really was one of the most fortunate things to happen to me in my career. Mr. Fixit really knew his stuff and was trying desperately to get us to absorb some of it, any of it. So after a couple of days of observing us, I think it became painfully obvious that we weren't working in any kind of coordinated fashion at all. It was five people going in 10 directions at once. So one day, Mr. Fixit calls the whole marketing team into the conference room, and I'm thinking, doom. But I suck it up, go in, comforted to some degree by the fact that jobs were plentiful at the time. So as we all sit, Mr. Fixit stands at the head of the table in front of the whiteboard, marker in hand, and he asks, what is the job of marketing? Now, after a moment of stunned silence, we each began to give our textbook answers, you know, grow market share, find and engage buyers, maximize shareholder wealth. And I think it was about the fourth answer. Mr. Fixit just said, shut up and write this down. And he wrote the following on the board, and I'll try to emphasize the words that he was underlining as he wrote it. To create demand among qualified prospects in the target market and drive them to the appropriate sales channel. Then he put down the marker, looked at us and said, if whatever you're doing isn't clearly doing this, stop doing it and come see me. What Mr. Fixit was giving us was a gift, the gift of understanding precisely what it is that our job was. Now, there are many other wonderful and interesting things related to the job of marketing, you know, branding, product research, product design. But what Mr. Fixit was explaining was that if you don't do this very basic job first and keep it as your mantra, your operational compass heading, you're going to fail, no matter how creative or energetic you are. 
Well, the, the company did grow, and after a CEO swap, which by the way is another great war story, uh, we sold the company to a ginormous firm, and I went on to my first VP of marketing gig, due in no small part to the lessons I learned from Mr. Fixit. And that's how I came to name this show and this blog, The Job of Marketing. And now, on to today's inaugural show. As I mentioned, my guest is Holger Schulze. Full disclosure, Holger's a friend of mine. We met back in 2005 when we both worked at a very large encryption company. Currently, Holger's the VP of Marketing at Diamond Mind, a company that has transaction processing technology used by schools throughout the nation. About a week ago, I had a long phone conversation with Holger where I asked him about the basic tenets of effective lead gen, what's worked for him, what types of advice he'd offer. I kept it general, basic even, because I think it's always useful to step back and take a look at the big picture, just like Mr. Fixit did. Yeah, Legion. I'm glad you, you, you're starting with the tough question first. So, <laughs> um, Legion, it, it, it's hard, right? It's tough, especially in B2B tech marketing and uh, especially IT and technical prospects. Um, what's the right word there? They're often skittish, right? Or even cynical uh, when it comes to marketing. They don't like to share their contact details, right? They want to be approached by marketing folks or sales folks. They don't want to go on landing pages. So it's 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 tough to not only reach these folks, but to get them to engage with you, right? And uh, um, start a conversation. So one of the things I learned uh, with IT audiences in particular is that you, you just can't hit them over the head with a direct sales pitch, right, or a product message that, that turns them off like nothing else. Um, instead, uh, I learned the hard way, actually, <laughs> to got to find ways um, to add value, right, to their professional lives, their decision-making, right? For example, uh, instead of pitching, um, say, a software to a healthcare provider uh, that, that supposedly makes them compliant, right, uh, with, say, HIPAA or any other uh, regulatory requirements and, and, and tell them all about uh, features and speeds and feeds and whatnot. And set, for example, provide them with um, an easy introduction, right? Easy, ease them into the conversation, if you will, right? provide value, build credibility, almost take smaller steps toward a relationship, right? And um, ways to do that are, are uh, things like like explainer videos or how-to guides or things like the ten, ten steps, uh, you know, to compliance, things that make their life easier and and, and and make you a trusted advisor rather than you know this uh, marketing sales guy that that you know can stop calling. Also, what I found with lead gen is that buying cycles are complex, right? And there's many decision makers and things that make decisions take long, even sometimes months or years, right? And, and, and really big uh, investment uh, projects. So, so so one of the things that I learned in lead gen is right, you never believe that a one-touch engagement will deliver a prospect for you, right? That is ready to buy and enthusiastic to speak with your sales team and sign an order. And um, it's it's one of the key things I learned to be successful, right? is that you really first need to understand your buyer. Uh, what motivates them, right? What does their day-to-day -day job look like, right? How do they want to engage, right? Are they looking for a solution to, say, solve a pain or, or fix a problem? Um, and a great marketer once told me it's the difference between selling aspirin and vitamins, right? <laughs> 
What Holger's referring to there is an old chestnut that I guess I'm known for using or overusing as the case may be, and it concerns the difference between selling aspirin and selling vitamins. In the case of aspirin, you're obviously selling a solution for someone who has pain, and what it'll do if they take it is take that pain away, if not right now, then very soon. When you sell vitamins, you're asking your customer to invest in your product up front and to use it for a long period of time in the hopes that they might get better. I know which one I'd rather sell. Interestingly, one of the most overlooked aspects of, of marketing or bio personas, right? Where is the company? Where are the people you're trying to sell to? Where are they on the technology adoption curve, right? Are they innovators really eager to take risks, right? And, and differentiate, differentiate themselves from their competition? Are they early adopters, not quite as aggressive, but still sort of, you know, willing to take risks? Or are they, are they early majority, perhaps late majority buyers, right? Who don't buy anything until it's been proven, price points have come down, uh, bugs have been ironed out and all that stuff. And so I guess my answer is to, to make a long story short, really take into account where that buyer is coming from, right? What's important to them, what are their pain points, to get them to engage. And then, and I'm not even talking about any of the tactics, right, that help you engage in, whether it's email, social media, or even the traditional trade shows, what have you. I really appreciate what Holger was talking about there, about uh, gathering the trust of your prospects. Um, I often think of them as sort of timid woodland creatures and You've got to try to use content and measure of trust to get them to come a little closer. Um, if they see you approaching them with a giant net behind your back, chances are a lot of them are going to run away. So our conversation moved on to buying cycles and how content plays into moving people through them. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and, and, and I guess content, right, for, for that very reason, has become a hot topic in the last uh, couple of years, right, to figure out what does that buying cycle look like and what types of content, what types of messages work at what stage, right? And in my experience, um, early in the cycle, it's got to be more on the informative, educational, even entertaining side of things, right, to, for example, go back to that compliance example, um, be you know providing helpful content something that before you even have a relationship right that that provides immediate value to your audience right to overcome that hesitance right because in effect what 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 we're doing is a value exchange right we're looking for va value in the form of um, say getting a registration a download a sign up so contact details we can follow up with and the the buyers are, are very aware, aware of that, right? That their contact details are valuable to a vendor, and in exchange, to make that a value exchange and to, um, you know, motivate your your prospects, you have to provide something that's of equal or higher value, right? And without them knowing you, perhaps not even knowing your brand, right? Um, it's got to be compelling. So these 10 steps to whatever solution guides, for example, right, or, or, or webinars. So, so those types of content are very effective in early stages. And then as you move through the buying cycle and build a relationship, then you can introduce solutions, right, and, and position your solution relative to a problem you have identified after you, you know, had an opportunity to figure out what's really going on with this buyer. So the conversation continued a bit about content and uh, at one point, I expressed my own lament 
about the fact that there are a lot of companies, particularly in the tech community, that just can't help themselves. They have to talk about their product, almost to the exclusion of everything else. And as Holger suggested, and I agree with him completely, that in itself doesn't really add much value to your prospect's daily life. It doesn't evoke any empathy, and it certainly puts you on a footing of immediately as a vendor, somebody trying to sell somebody something. So I asked him, um, how do you overcome, how do you deal with that sort of product infatuation? I think what, what, what's happening, similar to that parent experience, right, is that it's it's your baby and, and in the B2B world, it's your product, right? It's uh, all the uh, efforts of the company around building that great product and getting it out. And it's so easy to get caught up in that um, navel-gazing, product-centric view of the world. It's also easy because it's easier for a marketer and for a company to understand because they know their product, they know the ins and outs, they know what it does why it's cool, what kind of problems it solves. But in comparison, right, marketers often don't understand their buyers to the same degree, right? So uh, you, you have a much higher hurdle where you really got to understand, you know, what's going on in my market, right? Uh, different flavors of different verticals, how are they different, right? What's motivating my buyers? What's um, What might be some of the objections they have? What is um, the competition doing? That is much more complicated, right? And there's to figure out than it is to figure out product message. So what I think and, and I've seen you know, happening is that it's just so easy to fall back on a product message and then just keep your fingers crossed and hope that that the product message alone will, will carry the sales, right? And in effect, what you're doing is you're asking your buyer to connect the dots for you, right? Between their problem and pain points and, and your solution. And that actually works in just just a small fraction of the market, right? That that tends to work quite well or reasonably well with with innovators who are really at the top of their game and who are actively seeking out solutions to solve problems. But it doesn't work for early majorities, late majorities who either don't have the time or the insight or for whatever reason don't really want to do the work of figuring out for you, the marketer, how your product can help their help solve their problems. I love what he said about connecting the dots because that's really one of the basic jobs of marketing, isn't it? To make sure that we take a product and we make it relevant to the buyer in a way that reflects their particular problems, their hopes, their aspirations, and so forth, that we create demand. We then started talking a little bit about capture and you know, once you get someone to engage with you, um, how do you then sort of winnow it down? How do you work your funnel? How do you ensure that the people you've captured are the right people and how do you nurture them in the cases where it's possible to become the right people? I think and it reminds me a little bit of quality assurance, right? And I think the Japanese, uh, in the, what is it, back in the 80s and 90s, um, re revolutionized, right? How companies produce product uh, meeting very high, you know, quality requirements and, and and one of the tenets of this japanese quality approach is that you don't focus on quality toward the end of your product you know production process you build quality into the very beginning into the design of the product into early spec you know the specifications prototyping whatnot to make sure that the outcome is a high quality product and i think the same principle applies in in marketing right where to make sure that you get the right people 
um, you don't filter them at the back end, but instead at the beginning, you figure out who really is your target audience, who's your right target profile, right? And then build a message that really resonates with that target audience so that from the get-go, you get with reasonable accuracy, you get the right people into your funnel who have a problem that, that you can solve, right? And that have generally the, the urgency and means to solve it. Um, in, in other words, the getting the right people doesn't start at the back end. It starts, uh, you know, where you where your score leads and qualify them, but it should ideally um, that back end process should ideally be about prioritizing the already in in scope right profile prospects right that you have attracted and then match them you know to the right people and perhaps filter out some that may not meet all of your criteria, but as with the quality process it should it should be starting in the beginning so i think holger hit upon a key point here which was that the lead qualification process starts at the very beginning um, by making sure that you really are thinking through every step of the process so that you aren't just loading the hopper with dirt and hoping that it becomes gold on the back end so the conversation sort of led then to sales so you've made leads and you pass them over. How can you get sales to engage? Now, I'm sure we've all played marketing's favorite game show with sales called That's a Lead, No It Isn't. And I'm sure we've all been there. Um, so I asked Holger, how can you make sure that you've really established that firm connection with sales and that they're actually going to do anything about the leads that you've created? Yeah, interesting, that, that game show, uh... I'm trying to think if there's any organization I haven't seen that to some extent or another. It's it's as old as sales and marketing, I guess. And uh, much of this is culture, right? And the difference in culture and focus between um, uh, marketing and sales. And, and, and that's where this magic phrase of sales alignment comes in, right? Um, where traditional um, uh, funnel or traditionally, right, the, the sort of leads that came from marketing were considered marketing qualified were thrown over the uh, proverbial uh, cubicle wall right for sales to follow up and then as you pointed out the battle starts between marketing saying oh we sent you tons of great leads and sales saying what leads right those were merely contacts well, what are you talking about right and what uh, has worked in my experience and in my career is to just sit and and work with sales right and, and, and uh, define together with them what uh, what are sales looking for um to begin with right um uh, have a, a, an agreement on and, and a shared definition right of profiles um lead profiles lead stages right and um align if you will the models for marketing is uh, not only comped on 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 lead quantity and uh, and, and sort of these numerical metrics right but it's also comped on outcomes on, on revenue on closed one opportunities to to also give marketing an incentive and skin in the game right that uh, uh, um, this this disconnect and I think it will always to some extent it'll exist right I think the best we can we can do is, is narrow that um, it's it's really important to have to have metrics in place to to understand what's working and what's not, right? So that the discussion, hey, it was a lead, no, it wasn't a lead, um, becomes a little more specific where you say, okay, here is 
perhaps broken down by campaign or product or tactic, what have you. Here is how, how these leads convert, right? We can see, you know, here might be a breakdown in quality where we see a very subpar conversion rates, right, for, for what marketing considers leads, but at the end of the day, it doesn't translate into revenue, right? So, so without those metrics, it's always going to be tough to, to have that conversation with sales. So all the talk about getting close to and engaging with sales and partnering with them, that's all great. Um, but I asked Holger, I said, you know, oftentimes that just doesn't work. And one of the things that I found that um, worked for me was to stop making leads. And I don't mean that we stopped making them. I just meant that that was no longer the number we were on the hook for. We decided that we would sign up for an actual opportunity number, what some people would call a sales qualified lead. Now that meant we had to work really closely with the BDR team, but all of our performance, all of our targets, all of our bonuses even, were going to be um, based upon the number of opportunities as defined by sales and as measured by the common systems. So I asked him about that to see if he'd done that and what his opinion was. Here's what he had to say. Absolutely, and, and I think um, you hit the nail on the head, right? So one is taking responsibility for what's being uh, handed to sales, right? And uh, number two, investing in, in in the resources to do that, right? Both uh, manpower, if you will, right? So your BDR or telemarketing teams that, uh, and obviously it depends on your your numbers, right? Whether you have tens of thousands of leads and that, that you need to whittle down to a few thousand that are really sales ready, right? You, you, you probably need um, a few folks to, to do phone follow-up, right? Uh, plus uh, having the right tools in place. And just in the last couple of years, marketing automation platforms have become not perfect, but pretty good in, in narrowing down and prioritizing leads, right? Based on, on sort of demographics and attributes, um, uh, you know, company size, right? And also behavior in terms of, is this somebody who, who keeps coming back to our website every other day, right? To, to watch a webinar, download something, and then bubble up those more engaged leads uh, and, and, and score them higher, as imperfect as that is, right? Um, and, and, and make those available to sales. So finally, I asked Holger what parting words of advice he'd give the audience. And here's what he said. My biggest takeaway after many years uh, in, in B2B marketing is it goes back to building the right system, the right engine, right? And, and don't try and build that from scratch and try to make all mistakes in the world that others have already made for you, right? So find where possible, um, for lack of a better word, find blueprints, right? Find models um, that, that are proven, right? Uh, by very innovative, have been proven by very innovative marketers and marketing teams. So, so, so things that um, marketers have learned over the years in the thousands, right? And that, that folks like Serious Decisions and others um, condense into useful blueprints. So that's, that's one of my tenants, right? Wherever possible, use these models and then obviously optimize them for your market. Uh, use a lot of data, a lot of metrics to figure out quickly what works, what doesn't work. Fail fast and often, right? <laughs> and, and and don't be afraid of failure. So one of one of the things um, that I like to do in, in, in my marketing organizations is to allocate something like 10, 15, maybe 20% of marketing budget and time on 
new innovative things, new ideas, new type of campaigns, new messages that are unproven. You don't know, will they work out, won't they? But to to take risk and experiment and uh, every now and then, you know, maybe it's one out of 10, two or three out of 10 of these attempts, something great will happen to find out, wow, this message is really resonating, something we haven't tried before. This this new tool, wow, really makes a difference, right? Um, so, so, so that would be part of, my, my advice, right, to, to leverage what's out there that's proven, optimize it, tweak it um, with looking at the data, right, to see what's working, what's not. And don't, don't be afraid to take uh, intelligent risks um, to do new things. I want to thank all of you for listening, as well as Holger Schulzen for being our inaugural guest. Next week, we're going to get in-depth on how to choose, set up, integrate, and make the most of marketing systems. Our guest will be Derek Van Sant, one of the sharpest minds in the field, and I urge you to join us. Unless your system is perfect, then join us anyway. Bye for now. The Job of Marketing is a production of Growth Curve Marketing, LLC, who's entirely responsible for its content. If you want to reach us, please email us at info at growthcurvemarketing.com.